strictly waves with Bert and Hayes. We lift the weights and go on dates. And we are mates that educate and conversate. And it's our podcast. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 35. Is it recording? Yeah, 100%. Okay. No, we're keeping that. Welcome to episode 35 of Weekly Weights. Today we're going to do a little bit of a comparison program. So Will's prepared some programs for um, a lifter. So do you want to go over who this lifter is, Will? Yeah. It's been a while since we've done one of these, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, we've gotten away from our roots. Yeah, actually. So before we, before we say anything else, if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, please go and do that. Will will email the programs out after this episode's released, which will be the... What date? The 14th of December? Yeah, should be right. Um, yeah, and then you'll get these two programs in front of you for when you listen. Yeah. So, Will, who's the athlete that we're working with today? Um, so, we've got hypothetical athlete. He's male, middleweight. I just wrote middleweight because I didn't feel like we had to be too specific. Bantamweight? Mm-hmm. Featherweight? Yeah, bantamweight, I think. What's smaller, bantamweight or featherweight? Bantam. No, Bantam's bantam, smaller? No, bantam's bigger. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not hugely into fight sports. He's somewhere in the middle. Um, so yeah, it's like so, an 80 to 90 kilo lifter. Yeah. I mean, let's be generous and call the 77s middleweights, even though they're not. Um, Small cowards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somewhere between 80 and yeah, 95 kilos or something. So average sized man um, with numbers of 210, 120 and 245. Can I just stop you there, Will? Mm-hmm. Every time you do a hypothetical athlete, they're always terrible at bench press. Yeah, is well, this just a self reflection or? Yeah, I might be projecting a little bit. I because I actually in my head write what would be roughly proportionate, and in my head I'm like, if you can squat two ten and bench one twenty, that's not absurd. But in reality, it should be like two ten one forty five. Hey, well, I did two ten one twenty in a couple months. Yeah, two ten one twenty two forty actually. Yeah, so that's not numbers. really that unreasonable at all. Yeah, but I was terrible at bench press. Well, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking who who is somebody who could do with a lot of help, and obviously my mind cast back to Alex Hayes and thought that guy could have done with a lot of help. Yeah, I could have. And so, so here we are. So 210, 120, 245. I said he's got about two-ish years of experience, by which I mean about two-ish years of structured lifting. Um, so somebody you would sort of call an intermediate, not an advanced lifter, not an absolute beginner either. Um, yeah, the intermediate phase is about eight years. Yeah, I mean, the intermediate <laughs> phase is just, it's purgatory. It's basically what happens once you start lifting weights. Like, if you stick with it for a few months, you just end up in limbo forever. You're stuck. Yeah. Um, so, that's who they are. And the comparisons we're making are for an off-season program for this person. So, just for clarity's sake, both of these programs are presuming they would have, you know, at least another 10-plus weeks to actually prepare for a competition. So, they're a long way out from anything. And one is with a bias towards addressing technical errors of the athlete. And the other one is with a bias towards more just hypertrophy work. In reality, nobody actually sits at like the complete end of the spectrum in either respect. So normally the people that I get at least, and Alex, you can corroborate this if you want, um, the people that I get where I'm like, they just need to get more jacked, they still have technical issues. And the people who have technical issues often have technical issues partly due to muscular size and weakness as well as motor patterning. So you never really address one without both, but I'm just sort of biasing the programs in either direction. And it's, it's got to be said as well that training the technique is done regardless of what phase you're in. Yeah, 100%. So if you're doing hypertrophy training, you're doing sets of 10, sets of 8, you're going to be doing them loaded loaded light enough so that you can still do them perfectly and so that you can still ingrain that movement pattern that we're after. Yeah. So yeah, there's no like technique without 
difficulty and difficulty without technique, etc. Yeah, absolutely. But either either way, got one program, yeah, specifically like revolving around just giving us opportunities to address technique and one that's more just like a general hypertrophying program. For so would you say that most programs that you write will are somewhere in the middle of these two? Yeah, and in fact, when we get into the hypertrophy one, you had a couple of questions about why I why I did certain things with the lifting and I'll explain why, like, yeah, with respect to that. But yeah, most of my programs probably sit somewhere halfway in between these. Cool. All right, so we'll start off with the just the basic layout of the two programs. So let's start with the hypertrophy program first. Yep. So we'll just go over the four days of training and how they're laid out. Okay, so we have... Um, four days of training in both programs. The hypertrophy one, we have our main squatting day on the first day, so squat eights for this block. We also have bench press touch and go eights, and then upper body accessories. So we've got, um, by the time you're in full loading weeks, seven sets of back, a chest isolation movement, and some arm and shoulder work. I think I wrote tricep and side delt. Um, Day two, there's easy bench press work followed by secondary deadlifting and lower body accessories. So um, some single-legged work, some hip work, some quads and abs. And then day three, we have secondary squatting. So high bar squat um, in this instance. Then we've got our hardest or heaviest bench day, I should say, which has um, a paused top set and then more touch and go work. Some more pressing accessories Um a little bit more back, a little bit more arms. And then the final day is the main deadlifting day. Some non-specific upper body pressing and then just a little bit more lower body accessories to round out the week. So that's the hypertrophy one. Should I do the technique one as well? Yep. Okay. So the technique one, um, we have, again, the main squatting day on day one. This time, a top set and then some back offs. We also have a, a technique bench press variation after, which when we get into that program, I'll talk about. Um, and then some back work and biceps and rear delts as opposed to tricep and side delt. That's one of the least important differences between the programs. Love, but the, love the flavor in there, Will. Yeah, love the flavor. Um, the reason that there's biceps and rear delts, though, is because day two in this program is the main bench press day. Um, so that happens first on that day. You've got um, top singles on the bench press, easy singles, um, with back off paused fives. Then your secondary deadlift, um, and then a little bit more leg accessory stuff, so unilateral, um, some hamstring isolation and abs. Day three, a squat technique variation, um, a bench press technique variation, and a little bit more back work and a little bit of rear delt work. And then the final day has an easier squat day again, um, more bench press volume, your harder deadlift day, hamstring isolation work and abs. So slightly higher frequency and the bench days are distributed easy, hard, easy, hard instead of hard with the upper body work, easy, hard with upper body work and easy in the other program. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, So just about the accessory work, (coughs) Mm -hmm. it's quite similar in both programs. Yep. Why is this the case and how how have you decided to distribute the volume? Um, Of accessory work? Yeah. Okay. So... In both instances, accessory work, I've written in really generally, and it's just there to address the major muscle systems of the body. So there's not, I haven't gone super specifically in anything unless I actually thought it was worth being specific in. How have I distributed the volume? So in both instances, I have upper body accessories on one day and lower body accessories consolidated to the other day. And that's just to facilitate 
like a bit better recovery and actually just allow people to condense the work in. I'm not married to that as an idea, but I think if you hit something hardish twice a week, that's usually enough. And I know you're going to ask me that about pressing. Was there a second part of that? Just how's it distributed? Yeah, how's it distributed? So how did you decide to put certain exercises on certain days? Okay, so yeah. Um, on Let's talk about the hypertrophy one. So like I said, I've put the main hard bench press days on the days with upper body accessories. And because my upper body accessories include accessory pressing and tricep work, I want to consolidate the hard bench to those days because you don't want to come in with, say, fatigue triceps and chest for your harder bench day. So in that instance, that's why hard bench is on that day. Um, obviously, that means that you're going to be doing some lower body work also on days which follow or precede lower body accessories. So in this instance, you've got the harder squat day done the day before um, your first lower body accessories, which is also paired with your um, easier deadlifts. So you're going to come in with not as much leg fatigue. You do most of your leg work and then you have your easier squat day with upper body stuff. And then the day after you come in and do your harder deadlifts with more accessories. So it, while still having you have to do lower body stuff four days a week, I try to distribute it so that you're freshest for the sessions that are hardest in that instance. Cause I don't think doing your squatting and deadlifting on the same day, both days of your program is necessarily best unless you're married to doing an upper body. So oh, sorry, upper lower, I should so say. So just managing fatigue through the days to get the best performance yeah, on basically. the days where it's important to perform. Yes. Um, I did have a couple of more questions about accessory work. Yep. Um, you've put in slots in just like basic slots for the mm-hmm. accessory work. So like some of them say horizontal row or vertical pull or chest isolation or whatever. Um, would you choose a specific exercise for the lifter or is this all just general stuff? And would this would these accessories differ person to person? I do choose specific accessories for my lifters most of the time. Um, but I also don't when I don't think it matters. So say for, let's use rows as an example. Periodically, you'll get an athlete where you think, okay, they're really going to benefit from doing the X, Y, and Z. So say they're struggling to maintain some posterior tilt and depression of the scapula. You might give them a rowing variation that forces them to actually pull into that position. So say like, you know, a, a neutral grip cable row with a slightly wider handle or something and ask them to hold a one second squeeze at the end. Or you might get them to do your anti-bench like you like to for holding shoulder position. So in that instance, that's something where I'm like, I actually want you to do this a certain way for a certain reason. Um, you know, likewise, when I ask people to do, say, like an easy bar holding um, 45 degree back extension with a squeeze at the top of the glutes, I might be doing that to try and strengthen a certain position. So I prescribe it properly. Whereas when it's like, I just want you to do some back work, I'll often write into a program pick your favorite X or pick a horizontal rowing variation and just let them pick their own one. So in this instance, I put the slots in because without more detail about the athlete or knowing something about them, I'm not going to just willy-nilly pick an exercise. But were I to have an athlete in front of me, somebody I know quite well, I might fill in a few of those slots myself. Cool. And another question as a follow-up, would you consider any particular exercises to be necessary um, for either the hypertrophy athlete or the athlete doing the hypertrophy program or the athlete doing the um, technique program? Um, accessory exercises? Yeah. Are any of them, do any of them have to be in there? Is there anything that has to be in place? Um, not enormously. There's probably the one that jumps out to me in the, uh, in the technique biased template is on day two, on the secondary deadlifting day, 
I've written in hamstring isolation hip extension. So um, hip X is hip extension. And so in that instance, for somebody like that, we said, I'll get on to what the technical issues we hypothetically identified are. But for somebody in those shoes, I would want them to be doing some type of isolated hip extension work just to help um, grease them using their hamstrings and glutes while maintaining spinal position. So again, that's an example of where I would say I've identified this tendency in this athlete and I want to improve something about them. So that one would be like, it has to be done. The rest of it, no, nah, not really. But that's necessary for that lifter in particular, not for the general. Yeah, as a, like as a general thing, pretty much you need to squat, bench press and deadlift and do things that are similar to it. And then your accessories are just sort of plugging in the gaps in your program in the most like efficient way you can. Yeah, cool. All right. Let's go to the hypertrophy program. Let's talk specifics about that. Mm -hmm. So you've used a pressing variation on all four of the days. Yep. When previously on this podcast, you've said that, or you've mentioned that you consider pressing as little as two times a week to be enough in hypertrophy blocks. Is this a change in your opinion or is this something in this lifter that has you wanting to do that? Um, It's a mixture of both. So when I said when I said that I think pressing twice a week is probably sufficient for hypertrophy, I still I still tends to hold that because I hold I have quite a conservative opinion of of exercise science in general, and the bulk of the evidence seems to be that if you train muscles twice a week, maybe more, but twice a week is sufficient. You can maximize growth. So in that respect, I tend to think two is enough. But Greg Knuckles, who we've had on the podcast, so shout out Greg, um, he recently released a review where he he suggested that for upper body pressing, higher frequencies may actually have some benefits for hypertrophy. So I'm tentatively thinking that that might be the case. The reason that I have people pressing four days a week usually though is because pressing is more technically demanding. And so it almost always benefits from more exposure just to doing pressing and particularly some under less fatigue. And so when you look at the hypertrophy template here, on the second day, it says bench press, easy, paused or tech variation because it would be like in most of my athletes, even the ones that do need hypertrophy, they still do need some bench press technique work. So that would be really submaximal training that doesn't really interfere much with recovery, but gives them another exposure to that lift. It might contribute some hypertrophy benefit. I don't necessarily think so. And likewise, on day four, it says non-specific press easy. So in the programs that I've written for people, typically that would be something like an incline bench press, a high incline dumbbell press, or a shoulder press variation. So one that again, you know, probably targets some muscles that haven't been really stimulated through the whole training program so far. Um, like the upper parts of the chest and the shoulders, but also one that's not likely to have as much carryover fatigue from the rest of them. So it's a mixture of both of those things that you just said. Cool. And yeah, I, I actually really agree with you there. I was just kind of playing devil's advocate there. Um, no, I think it's good to play devil's advocate sometimes. You'd love to do that. I do. You should get that on a shirt, like quotes, let's play de- I'd, I'd like to play devil's advocate. Yeah, well, I say that so that I don't offend my guests when I'm like, you're an idiot, I disagree with you. Because sometimes it's useful to tell them I don't really disagree. I'm just teasing them out a little bit, trying to get them to articulate their position, Lovely. which they should do. Good. Yeah. And you just did there. Thank you. You did a good job, Will. Thanks, man. Proud of you. <laughs> um, Have you got right. more questions or are you just going to sip your monster and hope that I talk for 90 minutes again? That's why I haven't been listening lately. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've been Let's listening go. to my own podcast. Yeah. Too much, too much Burke. 
Um, all right, so on day two, you've chosen touch and go deadlifts to be your secondary deadlift um, session. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose this exercise in particular for the hypertrophy? So when I wrote this, I was actually thinking to myself, this could be any number of deadlift variations. Um, so, sorry, firstly, we should have really done this at the very start. So what I said for this athlete was um, in the event that we were treating them as needing technique fixes. I was saying their squat, they tip forward in the hole, have poor upper back tightness. Oh, I was getting, strength. I was going to get to this. Okay, we'll get to that. But in the in the hypertrophy instance, we're just saying you need bigger legs, you need a bigger chest, shoulder, and arms, and you need bigger hips and back. So the reason I did a controlled eccentric touch and go deadlift for this person is because eccentric loading is helpful for hypertrophy. So any deadlift variation where you're actually having to control the bar both up and down would be beneficial here. You could just as easily do a Romanian deadlift. You could do dimal deadlifts or any number of things like that. You could do a controlled eccentric touch and go deadlift from a deficit blocks. Doesn't really matter. In this instance, I just chose that one because I'm like, it's simple enough and elegant and you can load it relative to the other one easily. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, it's like 10% lighter or something. Is it 10% lighter? Uh, 125 versus 147. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah, it's about, oh, well, the max is 240. So it's very close to 10% lighter. Um, so it makes sense that it's meant to be a slightly easier day and it's just an easy way to demonstrate that. But yeah, again, in my own programming for other clients, I've done things like make it a Romanian deadlift or give them easy deadlifts and give them more hamstring accessory work where they do have to do eccentric loading. Either of them could work just fine. So we spoke earlier, like literally when we first started this podcast about how there's a crossover between hypertrophy and technique and Mm -hmm. these programs aren't necessarily only technique and only hypertrophy. No, not at all. And I like to use the touch-and-go deadlift as a teaching tool for someone who's relatively new to learn the positions in the eccentric and load those positions, get comfortable in those positions. So I think that's good that there is some carryover between loading the eccentric for hypertrophy purposes and for teaching purposes. Yeah, totally. And then to extend that, Oftentimes, the reason that you see technique issues, you can't just attribute it to motor learning. Um, It will be, you know, people shifting load towards stronger muscle groups or stronger movement patterns at the expense of ones that are weaker. And then that can contribute to some errors like globally in the movement. But, you know, say in this instance, if somebody does have weaker hamstrings, they're going to try and avoid loading them at length by rounding the back. Um, and when you do eccentric loading of the hamstrings because you are also stronger in the eccentric, you start to teach somebody to use the hamstrings under load at those ranges. So like you said, there is a crossover between them. Yeah, cool. Um, next question. This whole block is beltless. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, I don't think beltless training confers any unique benefit. So that's really important. But I do think beltless training can be really useful for two reasons. And they're related. One is that it starts you lighter um, and being able to start lighter just means there's a little bit less stress on the whole system of the athlete and particularly things like connective tissue and stuff. So that's good. But even better, it allows you to progress for longer because what I often do with people is I'll give them beltless eights or beltless tens, which are heinous, and then they'll progress and progress and they might do some beltless sixes. And then at the end of sixes, they're past where they were with their belted sixes, say beforehand. And then I can throw the belt back on and the RPE comes down a little bit even though the intensity is still rising and it lets them progress a bit further. Whereas were I to give them the belt in this block as I did for the technique um, for the technique block that we're going to talk about next, were I to give them the belt, it just takes away one tool that I have to give them back later to continue progress. So that's all it is really is the loads are light enough that I can afford to do it without a belt and I can put the belt back on later and go further. Would you say that there's any benefit in, particularly in the squat, with bracing without a belt 
that would sort of teach you how to then better use your belt when you get it back? I'm honestly not sure. Um, I remember ages ago reading some research where they actually found differences in activation patterns between, it was like internal and external obliques, which are both used in bracing. Um, differences in activation patterns between beltless and belted training. And some people were using that to justify only ever doing squats and deadlifts with a belt because they're like, I've got to teach the same bracing pattern. So I'm not certain immediately actually whether strengthening yourself beltless then will make you better with a belt. Um, It might be the case. What I do think is true though is that you probably make more sort of like micro errors in your positioning and things if you don't have the belt helping you brace well and so those other structures that help you brace and help you correct little issues like your upper back and stuff also probably get a little bit more work put through them so provided you can actually get appropriate stimulus through your legs learning to train relatively hardish beltless is still probably beneficial but not necessarily because it actually makes you better at bracing with the belt i'm not sure about that i think it uh, is a little bit more of a delicate movement without the belt especially in the squat. So it kind of allows you to sort of self-correct more than you would with a belt because you don't have those issues arise, especially those lighter loads. Yeah, but I also think that when I've given people a belt to help teach them bracing, it's a really useful cue to be able to say, okay, I want you to feel your belt and I want you to maintain that same feeling of pressure against your belt. And if that ever shifts during the movement, then you've lost your position somewhere. So again, it's more, the answer's not no from me, but it's more, I'm not sure yet. I think it's just the opposite of using the belt as a crux. Yeah. Because you can't brace. Crutch. 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 Crux is like, you know, the joint of things, or Horcrux, which is a Harry Potter reference. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So people often use their belt as a crutch for not knowing how to brace effectively. And those are the kind of people who probably should do some work without the belt to learn Mm. first. While we're on it, do you reckon you look a bit like Cedric Diggory? (laughs) He's the guy from Twilight, isn't he, actually? Um, He's the same dude who ended up being... I was going to say Edward Snowden from WikiLeaks. That's not who. What's his name? Edward Cullen, the vampire guy. No, he was he was Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter. Yeah. It's about the only similarity we have, Will. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. What else have you got, Alex? Let me get my questions up. Um, I think that's actually it for the hypertrophy one. Okay. Um, did you have right. any? Did you did you have anything in there that you haven't mentioned that is important? Um, okay, so a couple of notes on... So total volume of work-ish is somewhere in the realms of sort of 15 to 20 sets on all of the major muscle parts. Um, so that's probably worth just remembering because I think that's about in line with what what we expect to be Bef- best for hypertrophy. Before you go, Will. Mm-hmm. Oh, loading. That's another important one. Well, yeah, be- before you go, loading and progression. So, obviously, the block is starting lighter and lo- the lowest volume, mm-hmm. and it progresses to the heaviest and the highest volume. Yes. Um, how have you decided to do this? So, how have you chosen the loads, mm-hmm. and how have you chosen the volumes, and how have those loads and volumes progressed? So, volumes, per what I said um, just then, are roughly in line with what I think is about right for most people for hypertrophy work. So, when I have a given athlete, I normally start them with somewhere between sort of 12 and 20 sets per muscle part. Um, And those are just the numbers that are being bandied around by most people as being best for hypertrophy. If they're bigger or stronger, I often actually start them at the lower end. Um, If they're smaller or female or weaker, I usually start them towards the higher end and then observe from there. And so for some people, they just can't handle as much. For some people, they can handle more. And so I give them, (laughs) yeah, um, Alex saying he can't handle as much and I can. and yeah, you know, you give them little bits more and more across the blocks. 
So that was roughly how I determined how much volume I could give them in the week. And then on a day-by-day basis, um, I think James Krieger actually wrote recently that he that he thinks there's probably an inverted U relationship in terms of like how much volume you should be doing per session for hypertrophy. That's a hunch I've had, but I have no research to support it. But I tend to like giving people no more than sort of seven to 10 sets maximum for a body part in a day. And the reason's basically because once you've done about your seventh or eighth, it's really hard to do high quality stuff afterwards. Say goodbye to the 20 set chest sessions. Yeah, exactly. At Lockie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's also me just pandering to my own laziness. I get really bored after about like six sets of a given body part. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, I try and give people somewhere between you know six and 10-ish sets per body part on a day that I'm going to load them and I try and make the totals somewhere between 12 and 20. So that's how I chose that. How did I choose loading? Um, so when I actually have an athlete I've had for a while or, I, or I'm working towards a, a finite ending point, um, I usually work backwards and sort of see how light I can afford to start and then sort of basically establish the reps from there. And I would put that against what they've done previously so that I know they're roughly in line in terms of difficulty for this person because I didn't have that information. I just made it up. Um, and so <clears throat> the squat eights start at 60% of the max or very close to 60% of the max that I had um, that I had written down of 210. So 125 is, that's really close, isn't it? To uh, 60%. 105 is 50, 20 kilos is another 10. Yeah, yeah that's exactly pretty right. close. Um, yeah, started at 60%. Um, bearing in mind that they are beltless. So for eights, I might normally start a little bit heavier again, but most people get somewhere between five and 10% out of a belt. Actually, this is something I, this is just a, um, sort of tangential point. I actually think the benefit of a belt like really flattens out once you get past, I don't know, like 70 or 80%. I reckon most people get like, I reckon I get 25 kilos out of a belt at the top end of my strength. And I reckon a belt might add five or seven kilos to my best set of say eight or ten. Yeah, you reckon? I, yeah, I agree with that for sure. Um, which is another reason why you can probably afford to do some beltless work early. But anyway, so I started at sixty percent because that's sufficiently easy for me. If I did beltless aids at sixty percent, they'd be like comically easy, and I'd probably have to start closer to seventy for it to feel hard. Um, for other people, though, beltless aids at sixty percent are really hard. So I just started there. For the pressing, the eights actually start just, I think, just a little bit under 70% um, and end at around 75%. And the reason is when you're doing touch and go bench pressing, that's slightly easier than pausing. So the discrepancy is in the other direction. You might want to slightly underload versus what you think you could do with a belt when you're beltless, whereas you can afford to be slightly less conservative or even slightly more aggressive if you're doing touch and go bench because most people are stronger touch and go. So I used those as a starting point and then I just progressed at intervals of like five kilos on lower body stuff and two and a half kilos on upper body stuff. And then I looked at it at the end as well in the final week and just checked the percentages weren't ridiculous. Were this my athlete, I would usually plan like that and think that load progression was a little bit less important this far out from a competition. But if they were absolutely smashing their eights, I'd just let them accelerate a little bit faster. But I wouldn't I wouldn't plan to be hitting like PB eights in a block like this for either athlete. I'd just be having them do solid work. Cool. And the, the set progression. So you start with three sets for main lifts and it progresses to four. 
yeah. and stays at four. Yeah, um, everything else stays as well. It's just an introductory week. Yeah, so the first week, it, the first week is essentially one set less of everything than the subsequent weeks. Yeah, or one set less of most things. Some stuff like isolation work, I don't bother with an intro week. But the other stuff, again, is just to get people acclimated to doing the work. So if I had somebody coming in who'd been doing four sets of 10, then that first week would almost be like a deload. Um, if they were just starting volume with that, then the first set's going to still feel like a bit of a rude shock. And then you get them up to the full working um, working volumes after that. And we've spoken about why that might be beneficial on the podcast a yep. few times before. So cool. that's why. All right, cool. Well, let's go on to the... Do you want to take a break first and then go on technique? Yeah, maybe a quick break. All right. All right. Back in a sec. <laughs> I thought we were going to do it like more weekly weights. We are mates. We when lift we, weights. When we get trophies, they break. Yeah. Shout out John Tran for buying the shittest trophies in PA. <laughs> <laughs> Should we keep that in? Yeah, yeah fuck him. <laughs> um, okay, what's up? Um, okay, we're well, back. Well, well, welcome back to episode 35. I'm Alex. I'm with Will. Yeah. We're with Digby today. How are so you, Digby? Look out for episode 36, which is uh, featuring Digby on. How to overcome medical illnesses. Yeah, God, he's had a few, haven't you? He's, he broke a nail the other week, the poor little guy. <laughs> but he's, he's also had meningitis, so he's, he's crippled and retarded, Digby. Poor, <laughs> poor fella. Poor fella. Digby's my dog. He's just staring into the... The abyss. Into the water, because Will's dad just went on the boat and Digby wanted to go with him. Yeah, far out. Can we paint me as a little bit more rich, low, and all shore boy here? Yeah, he's, we're currently in his pool house, yeah. sitting next to his drum set. Did dad take the help with him when he went on the boat? <laughs> Sherpa. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about, or we're doing a programming comparison between a block for an athlete in the off season with a hypertrophy bias and a technique biased block. So let's talk about the technique one. Um, I've already introduced what sort of went on on the days. There's four days of the week. There's actually seven days of the week, but on four of them we train in this instance. <laughs> Alex, what questions have we you got We don't train. This, this guy trains. It's a, I mean, yeah, I allegedly train a few days a week. I normally just film myself doing dumb shit and send it to Alex. Yeah, actually, funny story, Will. Will's been trolling <laughs> me for the last ten weeks. 10 weeks. I've been coaching Will for the last 10 weeks for the Strength Fortress comp um, on Saturday. And he's just been incessantly trolling me about, you know, Anything. I hurt my back, my hamstring's gone. Oh, bro, I feel shit today. Why am I so fat today i feel like this and that like oh i'm so shredded uh, blah 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 etc etc forever forever, <laughs> literally forever every day and he was literally trolling me this morning so he's two days out pretending he's doing fucking biceps and burpees superset idiot yeah anyway he sent me a video of him doing it and then he got rear-ended yeah <laughs> actually so, had a car accident and he called me he's like hey bro i know i've been trolling you but um we're gonna have to push the podcast back a little bit because i just got rear-ended karma did I mention that I legit got whiplashed from that? Like, my neck is really fucked, dude. I don't know if I'm going to be able to lift. I will still beat Cheadle. <laughs> Shout out, Cheadle. He's going to come out afterwards and you probably wouldn't have won and yeah, it's going to be upsetting. Well, then I can just go back and be like, oh, serious about the whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no whiplash here. We're all good. I'm always good. I don't need Alex's coaching. That's why I troll him. All right. Idiot. Fuck you. <laughs> all right, what's up now? Okay, technique so we're going to talk about the technique bias program now so i'm just gonna ask will a bunch of questions basically about his justification for putting certain things in the program um so we'll start with the squats so he mentioned that this lifter has a problem with tipping forward in the hole 
has poor upper back tightness and strength um, and bad balance. So how are you going about programming to fix this? And is there anything outside of just programming that will help this? So obviously queuing is the thing that would come just outside programming. Um, but well, in, And life coaching will. Yeah, I do do a bit of life coaching actually. It's just that my life coaching is also a troll. So it's those poor clients. It's just mental fortitude training. Honestly, it's the poor staff at Lift Performance Center who stand near me. I just say the dumbest shit, and then I sort of like go like, "Ha!" and look out of the corner of my eye to see if the other staff are laughing. And sometimes they do. Shout out Brandon for never laughing at those jokes. Brandon loves my jokes. All right, so how am I going about fixing? Let's talk. Yeah, the squat. Um, how are we going about fixing it? So we're in the hypertrophy program we want people to be doing like a decent number of lifts plenty of them under fatigue um, and a decent lot of volume in this instance we want most of the lifts to be relatively submaximal and below that sort of technical breakdown threshold so the first thing you'll see when you look at the program say on the main squatting day is that they have one top set which is a chance to sort of focus and do it right Um, and then three sets of six after and if you actually look at how hard the three sets of six are with a belt, they are at the same loading as the four sets of eight beltless would be in the hypertrophy bias week in week three, right? So to give you an idea, 135 over 210. 63. Um, is it 63? That's just a guess. No, 64. Idiot. <laughs> that was actually a very good guess. I'm proud of you. Um, yeah, so 64%. So sixes at 64% are super duper easy. And likewise, 150 over 210, I bet you, is just over 70%. Yeah, 71%. So really easy loading. And as the weeks progress, they get to doing a top set of five at 165 and sixes at 150. So certainly nothing enormously strenuous. And all of that is done with a belt for the reason that wearing the belt is going to help you practice bracing, which is going to be a component of fixing you collapsing under the bar. So And also because it's going to mean you're going to do better quality of work. So that whole day is laid out so that they can actually do better quality reps. Um, probably the question or the next question is why is this work slightly heavier than you would be doing beltless? And honestly, the reason is just because wearing a belt, you can afford to work a little bit heavier. That's number one. And number two, it still needs to be sufficiently heavy to make them actually work to do the technique correctly. And there's probably benefit to making people do things like effortlessly, perfectly at times but they actually do need to have some type of a training effect so they do need to resist the urge to fall over while still giving them enough tools to actually help them not do it so that's why i've arranged it like that yep um so i had that as a question later if technique is the goal of the block why are things loaded heavier than the hypertrophy block yeah won't common technique problems be more likely to arise with heavy loads so yes they will if the loading or if the amount of fatigue you're doing it under exceeds that sort of threshold of loading and fatigue where you start to see those technical issues but if it's not then heavier weights are still probably better because heavier weights are more challenging and more specific so it needs to be heavy enough to be hard enough but not so heavy that you break down and then the other side of the coin sorry before you jump in the other side of the coin is there's a trade-off here because we're not doing as much volume so the intensity still does need to be a little bit up so this block actually serves a developmental purpose otherwise you're basically just detraining them slowly yeah, I think with something like um, technique-focused work, it's very relative person to f- person to person. Yeah, because people have different variants of bad technique, and those show themselves at different loads. Yeah, so 100%. I think it's a lot of a case by case basis with dealing with with your lifter. Like some of your lifters might do their technique work at seventy percent, some of them might do at forty five percent. Yeah, and that's sort of knowing your lifter and 
knowing what they need to focus on and how much load is required to elicit that response. Yeah, and I think I've said the phrase sort of like technique breakdown threshold like four times now. That's really what I look for with my lifters is like, is there a load at which consistently past, you know, three or four reps, things start to go south? And say for me, squatting even, um, where my technique's inconsistent, over about 200 kilos, or yeah, maybe 200, 210, probably 200, is where once I'm doing multiple sets and multiple reps, it's hard for me to have things perfectly replicable. So if I'm giving myself technique work, unless it's like a technique single, then it has to be probably below 200. Whereas you might have lifters who have great technique up to 90%, say. Or, or for instance, some people might break down at four reps. Some people might break down at seven reps. Yeah. So that you might need to cut off a couple of reps and add a couple of sets. So you might go from from three by six to six by three to yeah. make sure that those 18 reps are good yeah. versus not good. Which actually brings me to exactly deadlifts on day four in this program. We'll get to that when we get to it. Okay. But anyway, the main squat loading day is done in that fashion. So none of those sets are difficult. I've just given you the percentages so looks easy on paper, should be pretty easy, lots of chances to get it right. Um, you could probably condense that volume into less sets, but then you'd be less likely to get really good reps out. So that's why it's like that. Then unlike the other program, they actually have two other squatting exposures. So they have a day that I consider medium challenge on day three, and that's a safety bar paused squat. And I wrote in brackets or pin or paused squats. So when you have somebody who is rounding over in the hole, they usually have issues of poor bracing, poor upper back strength, poor weight distribution, or poor cord strength, or any of those together. And I find the safety bar squat to be a really helpful tool to sort of smash people with those issues because if you're imbalanced, it feels really bad. If you don't have sufficient upper back strength or tightness, it feels really bad. Um, and it sort of magnifies errors of balancing position. Or balancing... Ugh, magnifies the feeling of issues in your balancing um, because of the way the weight is distributed around you. So using a safety bar pause squat is a really good way of showing somebody you need to keep your upper back tight in the hole and if you're off balance, it's going to throw you about. But if you don't have a safety bar, then pin squats can be great for that as well because if you hit the pins in the right place and try and stand up, it'll feel bad. If you don't stand upright and keep your knees under the bar, it'll feel bad. If your back's not tight, it'll fold you over. And then likewise, pause squats can work for that as well. So any of them would be great. Um, and I've got four fours of that. So again, that's, that shouldn't be enormously hard and, um, doing fours, you're not doing so many reps at a given time that the quality should deteriorate, particularly at that intensity, which is 120 kilos. That's like just under 60%. And then the next day I wrote squat easy day belt. Um, so again, that's just another chance to practice some perfect reps in squat. So where the first day of the week you're doing squat that will be work, but should be perfect. In this instance, it's almost effortless and perfect. And that is true. Just take it easy technique work. Cool. Um, as far as stuff outside of programming that will help this lifter, mm-hmm. we're looking at queuing here. What are some of the cues that you would give this lifter that are outside of stuff that we've already spoken about on the podcast? Because we've spoken a lot about people tipping forward and you want to queue drive you back into the bar or keep your chest up yeah we're 35 episodes in and you like say something that we haven't said on the podcast before is there any is there anything else that would help this lift up maybe it's teaching something in the brace teaching something yeah certain points of the lift is there anything else you can add yeah so there's a couple of things that really help me or really have helped me with lifters who tip over in the squat um so one of them is teaching a proper like ribs down braced position and that's something that jamie has done 
Jamie spoke quite a bit about on our podcast on episode 34. Is that correct? Three. 33. Um, so yeah, getting that proper brace position and teaching them to hold it through, through a squat motion helps. But coupled with that, you have to get sufficient upper back tightness. So first things first is establishing that their grip on the bar is the right width. And this is something I've observed in a couple of my female clients. Many people are actually slightly too narrow. So if you have wrists inside elbows, then you can't get your upper back tight. So make sure the grip is correct and the bar is seated properly in the palm. And then teach people to retract their shoulders before they unrack the bar. And then before their descent, I tell people, drive your elbows into your sides before you pull them forward at all. So elbows into your sides and then in the hole, do that again. Some people don't like that and you can tell them, think of putting your triceps on your lats. Either of them will help actually create a stronger upper back. But if you can hold that sort of tricep to lat position, ribs down position all the way through a squat, then suddenly you've created more torso rigidity. So those are a couple of things I would I would always address with somebody with these issues if I thought the issue was actually from the upper back itself and not from the legs shifting back. If the legs are shifting back, then we go back to our things we've spoken about before, like weight distribution, getting the actual rhythm of the descent correct and the rhythm between the knees and hips correct. You know, st- yeah, all that crap that we speak about. <laughs> that crap. The stuff we speak about literally All every that really week. important stuff that you guys should all do yeah i feel like we're putting out literally our entire coaching method for free um let's set up a is it patreon you know that thing where people just donate to you it's like a gofundme but for us yeah cool let's do it yeah now i mean we'll put out the shirts and then we'll just get heaps desperate and say actually we're not even going to give you a product just give us money um but yeah exactly that so you know think about weight distribution think about yeah the rhythm between your knees and hips all that crap too and sometimes it's going to be a little bit of all of that together, which is why you need to do sufficiently easy work, but not too easy. And why you need to also do movements that actually stress those specific movement patterns, which is why I chose the safety bar squat in this instance. So I guess one thing to note is these problems that arise in the lifts can be caused by multiple things. Yeah. So it's all about identifying what the cause is and then programming and cueing for that cause. Yeah, big time. Um yeah, so I guess it's really, it's hard to give a very specific answer without seeing the person in person. And yeah. this person's made up. So Yeah, this person doesn't actually exist. Yeah, so really, I could so say anything I want. Exist. Yeah, you can't, you can't actually tell me I'm wrong because I made this person up as well. So. Why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The whole thing's imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that anyway, that's squatting. What's the next question? Um, I did have one more question about squatting. So why on day four... Mm-hmm. would you use um, an easy squat that is the competition variant when this lifter is so far out from competition instead of some sort of low limiting variant like a tempo squat? So in real life, I have done both and it really depends. So were I to think they had a specific issue that the tempo squat would best address, I might put that in that slot. We did mention balance, which is probably the biggest reason to use a tempo squat i made this dude up so what i've done is correct what you've done is valid in your imaginary <laughs> lifter scenario <laughs> now I'm imagining a different um, lifter yeah no like totally <laughs> so that that would actually be a really good time to use a tempo squat and i would probably load it lighter again because i would want it to be sufficiently easy um but i've also in my experience found it valuable to just give people another exposure to the main lift done as the main lift but quite easy purely for the purpose of practice um so it's it's an either or scenario but yeah something like a tempo squat could be really really good as well in that slot and i think just off the top of my head two of my clients have run almost this exact same template with 
an easier squat variation that was load limiting there. So James Dudley and Tim Fleming. And I think James Dudley has done paused squats or tempo squats or both in there. And Tim Fleming, I think in that instance, first had paused squats on a, like, I think paused squats and then tempo squats. So again, for the purposes that you just said. Okay, cool. Um, all right, let's go on to bench press. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that this lifter has problems with their touch point. So they can, you know, they have an erratic touch point, which means they miss the spot quite often. They touch in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, they have they lose shoulder and back position on the chest. Mm-hmm. So those are their main technical errors. Yeah. How are you going to go about fixing these um, with programming and how are you going to go about fixing them with queuing? So let's start with programming. Okay, so programming, similar to the squat, it needs to be sufficiently challenging but not too challenging so that they can do it right, um, which is why most of the bench pressing works quite easy. Um, I've given them long-paused bench presses. So, again, this is because this person's made up and not real. Um, Alex, if you were to have somebody who actually hit the chest with good alignment and then just lost tightness, you would probably give them a longer paused bench press, right? So you teach them to hold that position on the chest. But if somebody were to actually, as they were approaching the chest, dump a little bit and have their shoulder elevate and their elbow fall out of line, would you give them a slower descent bench press or would you give them a longer pause to actually feel what the right position is? Which um, is if someone touches the chest and then loses position, it would be a long a longer pause would be the go-to. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to lose position from the chest if you're in the right position on the chest. So you don't really yeah. say that very often. Yeah, well, no. here we go. Another shout out to a client, Tom Clark. He actually can hit the chest in a really good spot. And then as he starts to press, his elbow wants to flare, right? So he hasn't got, he hasn't got that patterning very good. And sometimes he'll actually hit the chest. And during his pause, you can see the elbow start. So the shoulder is starting to internally rotate. The elbow starts to drift towards the face. So in that instance, my first thought is this person needs to practice the position on the chest. So I give them a long pause. But you could also have somebody who is coming down nicely aligned, nicely aligned, and then an inch off the chest, they start to have that same issue. The elbow rises, the shoulder rises, they lose tightness. That instance, they might have some mobility issues, but they also have a motor control one on the descent. And then I would want to give them a long, like a longer descent bench press. So something like a tempo bench. Um, for this person, I've given them both. So on day one and day three, which are their like technique easy bench days, one's a long paused one and one's a slow eccentric touch and go bench for those reasons. So teach the elbows to be in the right place relative to the bar the whole way through. Mm -hmm. Both of them are loaded pretty easily. So 67 and a half kilos is like 55%. That's on day three and 72 and a half kilos is 60% exactly on the long pause bench presses. And then on the main day, they have singles across as top sets. So three singles at 97.5 must be like 80-ish percent, right? Um, um, yeah, 81%. And then four fives across 10 kilos lighter. So that's going to be like 75%. Um, so they've got singles across and then paused fives, which is just, it's just volume work that should be really achievable. Um, so you would couple that with the queuing that we'll get onto. And then they have a touch-and-go bench press day that's just a little bit more volume um, to put through the same motion on their other hard benching day. So two days that address the positioning issues, that. Um, They also have back work and rear delt work and things to actually try and build some strength in those muscles that hold you in position. But the probably more important question is how do you cue them right, which was what you were saying. Mm -hmm. So again, that would depend on the lifter that I had in front of me. 
because for lifters who've had issues with elbow alignment on the way down, I've had some of them where I've literally said like elbows out, somewhere I've said elbows in. You know, we were talking about this the other day. Yeah. You know, sometimes I have to say like chest up, touch higher. Sometimes I have to say, you know, chest up, touch lower. Like it just depends. So you cue them, you find a couple of things that work and then you just bit by bit add the layers of complexity back in when they're when the things that you want are sticking. Yeah, cues mean nothing if they don't mean something. Yeah, I said that first, didn't I? Like if the lifter doesn't get anything out of the cue, it's completely pointless. So mm. you're going to have to find a new cue. Yeah. A couple of things. One thing that I have found helpful for teaching people um, to set their shoulder position, I need to give a shout out to Matt Bartholomew for this, was actually teaching them to use their setup appropriately. So for a couple of my lifters who do fall like who do fall into that you know really elevated shoulder position where they fall heaps into internal rotation and stuff as they're descending, I've found that if they during their setup actually set their shoulder in retraction while their arms almost overhead when they're reaching back towards the bar in the rack, and then as they pull their body under, try and almost wedge their shoulder blade against the bench and push it down into depression, they do much better at holding that position because they've used the sort of like. I don't know if it's just the fact that the bench itself is a tool, but they've used that feedback to feel this is where my shoulder's got to be. And then they have a nice short unrack because their chin's under the bar. They go from there. So oftentimes doing little things like that can do as much to address the technical issue as actually cueing them once they're in the movement. Because if you bring the bar out and your shoulders are in a shit position to begin with, then you're still not going to bench well, even if you're trying to do the right thing because you're not in the right place. Yeah, we've said, we said this on the bench, fixing the bench podcast. If, you can get in the right position and you can stay stable. Benching is just bending your elbows and straightening them, so it's really quite simple. Yeah. But it's a, it's about getting that lifter to be able to get in the right position and finding different ways to get different people into the right position. Yeah. And those positions are going to be different for each person as well, so it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a one-cue-fixes-all. Um, it's it's going to be a trial and error a lot of the time. So one thing that differs between this program and the hypertrophy one, or two things, that they're the same thing, Um in both instances i've deliberately made it so that they don't do too much bench on a given day on day two which is their main bench day they bench first so they're fresh um and they have three singles across but i wouldn't really count that as three hard sets um but then four sets afterwards and then on all the other days they're not doing any more than about four sets they're never too fatigued to do bench well and the other big difference is that all of their pressing volume in this instance is pretty bench specific right it's all on a flat bench with a barbell Whereas if you throw your mind back to the hypertrophy-biased program, they have a decent amount of barbell benching. They have two touch-and-go bench-pressing ones um, and an easy technique variation, but they also have some dumbbell work and then something I wrote as non-specific, which might be pressing in a different plane. So in this instance, like the bench stuff is all a bit closer to home in the same way that the squat stuff's all a bit closer to home and trying to address their technical issues. So again, it's just more instances where they get practice you know, with a challenge induced against their technical issues, right? So you couple that with coaching and suddenly you have opportunities to get better. Yeah. Deadlifts? Um, no, not not quite just yet. Mm-hmm. So right. for the um, squat and the bench press, the technical errors are kind of, well, there's more exposure to stimulus in this technique program for the squat and the bench press. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been able to use different variations for those lifts for the purpose of fixing whatever technical error they have. Mm. How do you determine the percentages for a technique um, base block versus a normal block with similar rep ranges? So like, you know, you're doing sixes, um, you're doing sixes in the squat and fives in the bench for the main days. Mm. 
if you were doing like a strength block and you were five weeks out from a meet, you might be doing sixes and fives as well. Yeah. What's the difference between um, the stimulus in those two examples? So it'd be like what I said before, um, when I'm actually in preparation for a competition, I'll usually work back from what I need them to hit in the final week. And then the rep ranges that they hit, aren't they're not arbitrary, but it's like just in line with that to keep them progressing towards that goal. In this instance, you know, the reason they're not doing, say, eights is because most people by the eighth rep of a set are not able to execute it perfectly unless they already have really good technique, in which case they don't need a technique block. So, so I've deliberately reduced the number of reps, but in order to maintain about the appropriate number of lifts, they've got a few more sets across the week. Um, how do I determine the loading? I would think to myself, if this person, if this person has say a 10 RM of, let's look at this. Let's say their 10 RM is 150. Then if you give them four or five reps in reserve, likely they're going to be able to execute them perfectly. Just like we were speaking about earlier in the podcast, if that person can actually work slightly heavier and execute things really well, then it might be worth doing so. But it also might not be necessary if you have a really long time until competition to have them touching heavy weights because you have long enough to build up. But if they can tolerate slightly heavier, you push them slightly heavier. And if you go, well, they can't actually execute sixes at 130 pretty close to perfectly for most of their reps, then in that instance, we probably need to load them lighter at you know 120 or something so that we actually get the effect that we're after. But it's basically marrying up the amount of work you can do with the amount of stimulus that they can tolerate and as much as is needed in your sort of plan towards your next competition so that they have room to actually build. Because say you had them lifting in this block the sixes that you actually only need them to be lifting six weeks out, then you don't really leave yourself a whole lot of room for progression after that. So unless you're very confident they're going to make very rapid improvements, you're not going to have much room to build up through the coming blocks. Does that all make sense? So you're saying it's applying the principles to <laughs> yeah. the context. Yeah, but you just said it so much quicker. <laughs> <laughs> and better <laughs> yeah exactly you basically yeah you say what do I want to get out of this how am I going to do it and then you just do it the answer to every question that we've ever been asked is apply the principles to the context and then just just that's it and then wait yeah <laughs> um, I had one more one more question before we move on to deadlifts yep why are there top sets in the squat and bench but no top sets in the deadlift um, two reasons so the first reason is that the deadlift tends to be more fatiguing um, and so when you give people a top set, like you could, um, and there are clients for whom I have actually given them a top set in a, in a similar layout, but when you give people top sets, oftentimes the later work deteriorates unless it's really easy. And I also don't think it's as necessary. I think most people can get by training the deadlift at relatively lower percentages for longer. So it's a trade-off to actually include top set work. Um, in the case of the squat and the bench press, they don't tend to induce as much fatigue either within the session or between the sessions. So you can often afford to give people a tiny bit of slightly harder work. And because all of like you're doing so much squat volume at really easy percentages, having some higher threshold work is pr- or higher percentage intensity work, I should say, is probably worthwhile. And likewise for the bench press, they're doing so much easy work that having one or two hardish sets is likely worthwhile. Whereas the deadlift... They're not doing lots of hardish sets, but they're still sufficiently heavy that it's kind of stimulative in this program when we get to that. Cool. All right, let's go to deadlifts. Yep. Yeah. Um, day two, you have the lighter of the two deadlift days. Mm-hmm. You have you've chosen deficit deadlifts um, for sets of six. Mm-hmm. Why deficit deadlifts and why sets of six? So why deficit deadlifts first? Um, I said this person's technical issue was that they had not enough knee extension off the floor. Um, 
and querying weaker hamstrings. So if you do a deficit deadlift correctly, um, you guys might need to do an imaginary deadlift. But if you do a deficit deadlift correctly, what what I like to see from people is that their torso angle when they start breaking the bar off the floor is the same as their torso angle in their actual competition deadlift. So presume this person pulls conventional um, because when I made them up, I made them pull conventional. Because everyone should pull conventional. Yeah, we don't do sumo on this show. <laughs> um, so no. Soon no. Um, exactly. So who no. Shout out to Kevin Yang. Shout out to JP. Hasn't had his JP this, um, his shout out this week. Fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck him. It's his um, birthday today. Oh, is it? Happy birthday, Happy John Happy birthday, to JP. You. Happy birthday, JP. I wish you'd pull conventional. Then you'd be more like me. Hip hip. All right. Okay, that's enough. So, um, so yeah, this person's pulling conventional. We're talking about why deficit deadlifts can be good. So your torso angle should be the same as the torso angle with which you break the floor when you do a conventional deadlift. And one of the good things about sumo, um, sorry, about about deficit deadlifts is they should teach you that you have to extend the knee a little bit more early in the deadlift to get it off the floor, right? Because you have to bend at the knees just slightly more to have that same torso angle when you reach the bar, which also means that you need to fight to maintain that torso angle for a little bit longer. So they're good at teaching you to use your legs off the floor. They're good at teaching you to actually maintain some tension in your hamstrings. And they're good at teaching you to maintain that torso position early in the pull. If you have somebody who doesn't extend their knees correctly off the floor, a couple of things will happen. The bar will have to drift away from their body because it's going to be sort of riding up their shin, which is inclined. And their back will round as they're trying to hold onto the bar. So they're neither, they're neither extending the knee, loading the hamstrings, or maintaining their torso angle. So you give them a deficit deadlift where it loads specifically those patterns and it's a good chance to actually try and ingrain that technique. If you do your deficit deadlifts and you start more upright than your normal deadlift, then you're going to just round more and it'll strengthen your back to actually finish the pull, but it's probably not as specific. And likewise, if you do your deficit deadlifts like just a super elevated stiff leg, you're basically just doing stiff legs that are harder, which is fine. Um, But the way I like to do them is make them as close to the normal deadlift as possible and teach people to have strength through that position. So that's why I chose that one. Um, why do sixes? Just because they're lighter and I want them to do more volume. There's not there's not an enormously special reason. How are they loaded? Uh, they're 20 kilos, so close to 10% lighter than the main deadlifts. So 150 of 245 is pretty light. Um, so they start at about 60% and they get up to what must be just under 70% of the conventional, of the normal deadlift. 165 divided by 245. Um, 67%. So between 60 and 67% for sixes, which is not very hard. Um, but yeah, to ingrain those positional aspects. Then the main deadlift day, is that the next question? Yes, so I'll get to that. Okay. Um, so the main deadlift day, you have used six sets of four, loaded at just under 70% to begin with, finishing at about 75, 77. So 69% to to 76%. Yeah, so pretty, yeah. pretty much what I said. Yeah. Yep. So you got six sets of four mm-hmm. uh, versus in the squat you have sixes and bench you have fives and even in the deficits you had sixes. So why are we doing uh, sets of four in the deadlift versus higher reps in the other two lifts? So a couple of reasons. One, because it's harder to maintain really good positioning in the deadlift under fatigue. Like most people can actually grind a couple of deadlifts with poor position 
And when you do higher reps, particularly if you've got somebody who's got weaker hamstrings or hamstrings that don't like to do heaps and heaps of work, which is most people, you just see progressive backgrounding. So in order to actually maintain quality of the reps, you normally need to train the deadlift with slightly lower reps per set. That's number one reason. Number two reason is in order to get that third squat exposure in this program, we've already have we've already had them squat earlier in this day. So you don't want to have your sets loaded as relatively difficult because they're already coming in under a tiny bit of fatigue. Um, that's number three. Sorry, that's number two. And there was a third reason that I've completely forgotten. Um, anyway, those are two good ones. If I think of the third, I'll come back in. You remember what they were? My two reasons or were you not listening? I remember what the two were. I was trying to think of the third for you. Oh, oh well, you know, too bad. Guys, you'll have to hire me if you want to find out the final secret third reason. Inquiries to Will at WillBerkman.com. Buy the weekly weights training manual book coming yeah. out in 2019. Burke Methods training manual. I've spoken to a lot of people about this. There'd be no chapter headings. There'd be no contents page. All the pages would be put in out of order. Just total non-secateurs everywhere and then diagrams of stuff that doesn't relate. And the whole point is you're more confused when you finish the book than when you began. So you buy the second edition. Yeah, exactly. Which is even more confusing. Yeah, but the whole point is it makes you think. And that's what I'm all about, making people think. Um, but anyway, that's the reason. So we have, oh yeah, six sets of four. And also because it facilitates you training with a slightly higher percentage of one rep max um, than is being done in the other lifts. So yeah, those are the main reasons. Um, one thing that I didn't mention, though I spoke about it way earlier in the podcast, is on day two, I've also written in hamstring isolation with hip extension. So that might be something like a 45 degree back extension holding weights. Again, that's just to strengthen the hamstrings, particularly in the function of hip extension, usually with something that's actually loading the torso um, as well. So yeah, that's why 45 degree back extensions are great there. The reason that's on that day and not on day four is because day four, you've already done quite a lot of um, axial loading between the squats and the deadlifts. So the hamstring isolation would be more likely something like a hamstring curl or a GHR or whatever, where it's not putting as much compressive load through. That's why I put that in there like it is. Excellent. Any other questions? Are you going to beat Cheadle on Saturday? Absolutely. It's going to be very embarrassing if I've said absolutely like that. What do you reckon you're going to need to pull for the win? So just a bit of context for everyone who doesn't know Cheadle and Will. Um, Squat should be relatively similar. Bench press, uh, Cheadle has a huge advantage. (laughs) And deadlift, Will has... a Maybe not equally huge advantage, but an, a, a big advantage. So uh, it's gonna it's gonna come down to some making lifts and tactics and making third deadlifts. So here's what I reckon. I reckon Nick probably squats two forty five. I reckon I actually think he's maybe strong enough for two fifty, but I don't know that he will. Um, like in the past, he's definitely squatted. He's done two fifty five. Yeah, he's done two fifty five for that was like ten kilos heavier, and he's had a pretty hard cut. So I reckon he squats 245. If he squats 250 or more, it's a hard day, unless he misses a lot of benches. And then I reckon he benches in the low 160s. I reckon he benches 162. He's done 165 in comp. 65, yeah. I reckon I'd give him 162 to 5, right? That's if he gets all three of his, his benches. His bench has been going well. Yeah, his bench has been pretty good. I don't think he's going to bench 170, though. Um, he might. He could surprise me. But I reckon he goes about 245, 165, which is, that's like 410, right? And then he's going to deadlift in the low 270s, 272, 275. That's a 685 total. So if I squat 250 and bench 135, that's 385, which means I need 300. Big Perfect. Big 300. So, yeah. So it really depends. But that's that's in my head about what's going to happen. Um, 
But you never know. Just like any close powerlifting battle, it's going to come down to making lifts when they matter. Yeah, and I'm not and good at that. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> but and anyway, so yeah. last comp, so Cheetah wins. Yeah, preemptive congratulations, Nick. <laughs> um, one last thing on this program before we just descend into oh, shit chat. Like also, before we further on, um, before we go any further on the '94 battle, there's that guy from, I think he's from Brisbane, Eric Kidd. Yeah, I told you he's good. Yeah, he's, he's got, got like three hundred. He's, eh? he's got a six sixty total. So it'll be a bit behind. He's a smoky. He'll be a bit behind you both on the subtotal, but um, he's three hundred in competition. Yeah, it was hard. I but might have to kneecap him out the back. Like, sorry, bro, if you're listening, I don't have anything against you, but I'm not having somebody take home my bacon when I'm talking the chalk ball. <laughs> That's the standard the Lily Bridge excuse. Um, no, I wanted to say one more thing on this on this program, um, which is worth noting uh, on the technique one is the actual number of sets per body part are not enormously dissimilar from the hypertrophy-biased program. But they are more specific, and not many of them are quite as hard. And it's probably important to have a reasonable proximity to failure for hypertrophy training. Um, so this is not quite as good of a hypertrophy program as the other one, but you're still doing sort of 14 to 16 sets of quad work and sort of 15 to 17 sets of hams, close to 20 sets of pressing, although about six or eight of them are really easy and sort of 14-ish sets of back work in this program. So it is still it's still across a week a reasonable program for hypertrophy. It's just not quite as bodybuilder-esque as the other one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just thought that was actually worth noting is it's not a com- they're not at complete opposite ends of the spectrum like we've been saying the whole program. It's just biased one way versus the other. Cool. I, I do want to ask you one more thing, mm-hmm. and that is on nutrition. Yeah. If, let's just say this lifter in both instances is under-muscled, but in the technique bias, he's a little bit further to, to needing technique work, mm-hmm. which is obviously why he's doing that program versus the just the straight hypertrophy program. Um, would there be any differences in nutritional recommendation for these two programs? Maybe. Um, I mean, if you're doing a program for hypertrophy specifically, then I think it would be silly to not try and put on weight. So in that instance, I would advise somebody to have a small to moderate um, surplus going on at the time if you're doing a program mostly to address technique but you're in the off season and you're under muscled i still think it would be to your benefit to put on weight so you might not need to you might not want to push weight gain but i would still be saying aim for a small surplus at the time the difference would probably be that if you're doing the hypertrophy training program you're going to expend a little bit more energy, so you probably need a little bit more calories coming in, and it's also probably more important for you to get a little bit more carbohydrate. But when you get into the nitty-gritty, I reckon the differences in a practical sense would be very small. So in all honesty, both of them, you should be aiming to gain weight. Just the hypertrophy one, that would be like a priority as opposed to something that you're doing to facilitate your training. And both of them, you need adequate carbohydrates to fuel training. In the hypertrophy one, it might be slightly more, but not really much. So... The way, I would, the way I would go about it would be for the person in the hypertrophy block would just be in a slightly more aggressive surplus. Yeah, 100%. Like that could work great. 2 to 5% more aggressive than the other. Yeah. Like if somebody came to me and said, I have maintenance of 3,000 calories and it's my off-season and I gave them either program, I'd say it would probably help me to gain weight. And if they were the technique person, they said, how much should I have? I'd say, I don't know, 32, 3,300 most days. And if they were the hypertrophy one, I'd say 33 to 3,500. So it's yeah. really not a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. We agree there. Cool. Um, As usual. Yeah, that's so weird. Um, anything else do you want to say? How about um, tell me, out of 10, imagine you were marking me 
So this is a presentation I've given to you, the class. Why don't you give me your thoughts as the teacher? Um, be ruthless. I'm sick good. of getting HDs. I'd to be say honest. I'd say eight and a half out of ten. Okay, that's an HD. Used to them. Um, okay, eight point four five out of ten. No, that's a disappointment. Um, yeah, you were good. Your explanations were a little bit um, loose at times and a little bit slow in response. Yeah, I was. I was thinking. Um, you could have done better with that. Um, <laughs> but overall, uh, an excellent performance, Will. Oh, thank you. Almost, an, almost a high distinction, but just a, a very high D. Well, if I gave you teacher feedback, I would say thank you. Often late to his lectures, <laughs> <laughs> um, but generally good content. Forty, yeah, forty minute, one hour lectures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were the best. We had one lady who would literally just flat not show to tutes sometimes, and then show up like an hour into a two hour tutor and be like, "Oh, so sorry." She had a really thick accent. She goes, "So sorry, I forget." <laughs> We'd be like, "Okay, that's all right. Take a seat." Classic. Yeah, classic. All right. Um, thanks for listening. I don't have anything more to say. Any Do you more shit chat? What's no. going on this weekend, Will? What are we doing? Where, well, first thing that happens is the fort. And then straight after the fort... Actually, I want to tell everybody the story about my brother. That's pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Please um, do. This but yeah, funny. straight after the fort, Burke and Hayes slamming not beers because I don't like beer. Probably ciders. And by slamming, I mean sipping slowly. Will will be slipping... Will will be sipping ciders and I'll be slamming beers. Yeah. Um, there'll be weekly ways going live from the banquet where we're just getting mad and yelling for them to play levels by Avicii. Classic, <laughs> classic weekly ways gag. We get absolutely lit. I get tired and go to bed at about 9pm. That's normal. Um, Alex stays out, which is also normal. Um, and then the next morning, I'm up at 5.30am. That's also normal. Cooking everybody in the house eggs. Um, probably naked. That's also normal. Um, like naked, hopefully, just hoping somebody will walk into the kitchen and be like, wow, didn't know there were chipolatas for breakfast. Um, <laughs> so, so then I've cooked eggs. Sunday we record with JP. He wants to talk about mindset and stuff. That'll be cool. That's coming out next uh, week. So that's a Christmas when, week. When did you speak to him about it? Yesterday. Oh. He said, hey, Will, um, let's talk about He stuff. said he wanted to talk about um, gym values and opening a gym and creating an environment and stuff like that. Yeah, and then I said, that's boring. Let's do mindset. And he was like, I love mindset. So we're going to do that. Mindset around opening a gym. We'll talk about that all fair. And then... And then <laughs> you need to plan this a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, and then we've got team dinner, haven't we? Team dinner on Sunday, yep. Yeah, and then we're home on Monday. No, the story I wanted to tell everybody, by the time this episode goes out, this will have blown over, but my brother's birthday was yesterday, and he likes to party. So He likes, he likes to party. And I bought him a bottle of Prosecco, because he loves Prosecco. But I tr- I got a tiny Ziploc bag and filled it with creatine. And <laughs> I tried to sort of stick it underneath the Prosecco bottle, but it wouldn't stick. So I got an envelope and wrote, you know, Dear Max, open on your birthday and stuck it to the front of this bottle of Prosecco and put it in the fridge. And inside that envelope, I had a written card to my brother that just said wink on it and put his little like three grams of creatine in a Ziploc bag. And my brother is now convinced that I've given him about three or four grams of cocaine. And and it's also been aided and abetted by a couple of my friends who messaged him to wish him happy birthday and say they hope he enjoys his gift from me. And he's completely bought it. So I can't wait 
for my brother's birthday celebrations this weekend. I wish I was in Sydney because I, just, I know he's going to send me a message saying that the shit I bought him is bad. I'm going to have to break it to him that he's actually snorting creatine. It's going to be the best thing ever. Maybe it'll be like ultimate placebo and he'll get really high off it and message you be like, bro, where'd you get this stuff from? I need your dealer. Is it illegal for me to be just like to be saying that my brother thinks he's taking cocaine or is it not illegal because it's not actually cocaine? It's... I don't know. I mean, for the record, my brother has never done drugs as well, so he might actually think he gets high. That's awesome. How funny is that? His first ever high is going to be... That's like the standard story. That's the biggest lie, by the way. Allegedly. (laughs) That we know of. (laughs) All right, that's Weekly Waits for the week. I'm Will. I'm Alex. W.BerkmanPT. At Alex Hayes underscore lift. We'll chat to you next week with JP about something. Okay, bye.